And we are back. Welcome to Abstractable. I'm Ryan and with me is Lockie. The Abstractable podcast is for curious people who want to learn and we dig into some of our favorite thinkers and uncover what to take away from their ideas. Today's episode, we talk about Daring Greatly by Brené Brown. This is a great book. Um, And in this episode, we discuss, I guess, some of her ideas which revolve around vulnerability and shame and the deep, these deep-seated emotions and kind of what they mean for your life, how they plague ourselves and society and why we spend our lives pushing away others and actually ourselves. And we kind of parlay that into what she talks about, about the disengagement divide within organisations and how it applies to work as well. So why are we reading this book and talking about it? Well, it's the kind of concepts that will allow us to lean more into what Brene calls a wholehearted life and it helps to start unravel some of the toxic feelings that hold us back from doing what we really want to. So if you want to find out more about Brene Brown, she's an absolute superstar. So you'll find her on Twitter with her millions of followers at, at Brene Brown or she's got a fantastic blog and a really detailed website at brenebrown.com. We hope you really enjoy this episode. And we're back. How's it going, Ryan? I am going really well. And how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. It's about 7.30 at night here. Where? What time is it where you are? 20 past 11, mate. Is there ever a time that we're not going to say we're doing well? Probably not. It's just a not it's a great Aussie, way to start a podcast. The Aussie <laughs> way. Yeah, exactly. What are we discussing today? Daring Greatly by Brené Brown, Dr. Brené Brown. Mm. Yeah, this is a great book. I really enjoyed this. We're, we're entering into some new territory here today, mate. We, I don't think we've hit on a book that kind of tackles something that's um, yeah, in territory, certainly for us, that is, is harder to venture into. Um, from time to time so um you know i want to dare greatly today in this episode excuse, oh, excuse the pun there he is. so i mean give us a quick overview of what this book's actually about and then we'll dive into the bio so uh dr brene brown she's um essentially a researcher um she's had an academic background but she does um lots of other other things too and so the 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 body of her work is centered around um human emotion vulnerability and shame and uh, these particular ideas and how they manifest themselves out into um the world and the way in which we structure ourselves and organizations uh in society and she touches on some what almost sound like um, uh, non-intuitive ways of looking at uh, these particular emotions, particularly when you first hear about them. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that, but just these these things that we maybe perceive as being you know, weak, um, certainly from a, you know, definitely from a, like a more a male perspective in that regard, uh, which are in fact the opposite of that. And they're actually signs of strength, and so um, that is kind of what she hits on throughout this book, and and explains about you know things like perfectionism and and why you know that is such a terrible thing, um, or why shame is such a terrible thing, and how we need to eliminate it more, f- not just from a um, you know personal feel good perspective, but also from a um, like productivity perspective, or from a you know, making making more yeah. of what we're doing. I yeah, that's a great summary. I think I'd challenge you slightly on the eliminate word. I think she'd probably say recognize and deal with the shame as opposed to because something that when I was reading this book, I think often when I'm kind of challenged with this sort of type of I suppose concepts is I think oh this is about someone else this you know 
I'm reading this about someone else. It doesn't really relate to me. But when you, that's just a total straight up defense mechanism. And when you lean into it a little bit, and and when I read this, I tried to be really um, conscious of the fact that you know this is for this happens to everyone, including myself, and to kind of recognize that. And it it is scary. I think. Yeah, I think. Sorry, I think when I say eliminate, I mean we are never going to eliminate that internally, but I think eliminate it from the paradigms that that probably exist um, and just the kind of shame culture uh, that exists mm. is probably the the thing that she's probably trying to, you know, push away as much as, as, much as possible. Bring it out into the light, yeah. Um, Turn it to so the Brene, light side. That's it. Don't turn to the dark side. So Brene was born Cassandra Brene Brown uh, in 1965 and she's from Texas. She's uh, definitely identifies strongly as a Texan and it's in a lot of her speeches and that sort of stuff. Uh, she's brought up Catholic when she was younger. And she then has she no left. shame in being a Texan, mate. <laughs> That's right, loud and proud. And then she actually left the church for a couple of decades but has then since gone back. Um, to some sort of uh, Christian faith, um, which she talks about loosely in her writing. Um, but effectively, when she finished school, she started uh, her work. Um, probably the start of her career was, and the start of her work as an academic was studying social work at the University of Texas. Uh, which she finished in 1995 and then she followed it up with a master's in social work in 96. And in that time she married her husband, Steve Alley, who she's um, still with today. And he actually kind of features in, you know, part of her writing is really she exposes her vulnerability and talks about portions of her life with her family and and Steve's a big part of that. Um, She spent probably post that really the best part of the new millennium, the last two decades studying um, the topics, as you said, of courage, vulnerability, shame and empathy. And along the way she started writing a blog and is a prolific author really because she's written um, really a number of books throughout that time. So she said the first one was I thought it was just me but it isn't, Telling the Truth About Perfectionism, Inadequacy and Power in 2007, The Gifts of Imperfection, Letting Go of Who We Think We Should Be and Embracing Who We Are. That was 2010. I've read that and I thought that was really good. This book, Daring Greatly, um, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent and Lead, 2012. And then since then, Rising Strong, The Reckoning, The Rumble, The Revolution, Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging, and the last one, Dare to Lead, in 2018. And five of those books have been New York Times number one bestsellers, so absolute superstar. And I know a lot of people who are, you know, fanatical followers followers of her, and she's made a difference in so many lives um, through her writing and the concepts that she puts out. So um, in 2016, the Huffington Foundation, they honoured Brown by pledging $2 million over four years to fund the Brene Brown Endowed Chair in the Graduate College of Social Work at the University of Houston, and that's where she's a research professor and she holds that um, chair effectively that is named after her. Um, And, yeah, effectively, she lives in Houston, Texas with Steve and they have two children. Um, Ellen and Charlie and in March 2013 she launched this book on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Um, and the book title comes from a Theodore Roosevelt quote, Citizen in a Republic. Um, So I guess she kind of launched it on a really massive platform and, um, you know, kind of took off but she's she really became famous from a particular TED talk she did uh, that really catapulted her through and she actually talks about the process of going out and doing that TED talk and how it felt it was the thing that really changed her life but it felt so scary to do and she felt a lot of regret afterwards and 
you know, she was exposed that vulnerability and now she's a superstar. I love how she, um, because she did, she did the first TED talk and this was, that was kind of her presentation, you know, her initial kind of exposure to the world. You know, this is the research I've been doing. And in that, you know, she looks, she, she looks like she knows exactly what she's talking about. You know, she's got a very well-prepared presentation, et cetera, et cetera. The, the presentation itself went viral, blew up on, you know, TED Talks and YouTube and everything else and, and ended up you know, really kind of shoving her into, the, into stardom. And then it's quite interesting her coming back you know, in a number of years afterwards and actually doing a TED Talk, almost analysing herself in that, uh, that TED Talk as the example because she said about she About the TED Talk. Yeah, about the TED Talk itself and, and just how, how exposed she felt when she did it and how much she, she regretted you know, getting up on stage in the first place after she first, you know, saw that the video had posted and then and then when she saw that the, the, the views had started skyrocketing, she, you know, was becoming even more scared. She was like even more concerned about um, the exposure that was happening. So, so interesting. Wow, it's so interesting. It is. Oh, that's our catchphrase, I think. So interesting. We roll that out every time. <laughs> that, that's, probably, that's probably the abstractable meme. Very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> That's the f- that's the first T-shirt when we release the merch. Um, so do you see parallels with Stephen Pressfield's book and this book? I, yeah, um, there's certainly parallels because it's about leaning in in some form. Um, but I would suggest that, where Stephen Pressfield comes from is a internal resistance related to a creative outlet. Whereas I think vulnerability and shame is related more to connection with others uh, in the way that Brené is describing it. So, um, but certainly in both instances, I think they're really about showing up and being there. You know, you're, you're there on the, on the mm-hmm. coalface, you're, and you're, when you recognise that, you know, in Pressfield's case it's resistance or in, you know, Brown's case it's, um, you know, this shame or, you know, not wanting to be vulnerable, uh, actually kind of leaning into that feeling and, and you, know, you know, giving it a good punch, punch in the gut and, and moving on. So there's definitely parallels but I, I, I would yeah. not connect them up completely. What about yeah, you? it's interesting. I, well, I kind of feel like that this is the deeper emotional reason for the resistance that Pressfield talks about and that this is the underlying both scientific and also, you know, psychological connection to yourself that kind of leads to the issues that Pressfield talks about and his scope is narrow. It's about creativity but I think creativity being creative and I know Brene Brown talks about this in her book is is a high vulnerability exercise um it's an exposure so to me there's a lot of crossover um but like not direct but yeah there is these concepts linked together in the web I think yeah I think um I think they're both tapping on this. There's some sort of thing that's that's a barrier to, and so in her case, the barrier is really centered around something that's extrinsically maybe focused, where it's you know reliant on the connection with others or the perception of others. Whereas mm. in Pressfield's case, yes, yeah, certainly the perception of others is something at play that he talks about in the book, but the resistance is definitely something that manifests. Um, internally and it's about dealing with it internally. It's like dealing with the internal critic as opposed to the external critic to some degree. Hmm. Tell me about vulnerability because that's the idea. I mean, there's two massive parts to this book, vulnerability and shame, I think. Yeah, well, she she, she sets the book out. She's like, uh, 
so we're going to tackle vulnerability and shame in this book. And she's, and she's like, whoa, I know, I know like, you know, it's a big, that's a big ask, but we're going to do it. <laughs> she's like bracing you in for this, for this journey. And it's, it's quite interesting because she does, she does hit on both. And I think they're quite, the way that she describes them both, they're very connected, very much connected um, things. It's, yeah, it's really interesting how she kind of talks about during her research, she was like hoping for different answers. So it'd like validate some of her personal things that she was avoiding, you know, <laughs> feelings or dealing with feelings of shame or vulnerability. And she was almost feeling, I don't know, I guess I can use the word, the resistance at that point not to dive into these things because she kind of felt it would, she knew that if she found out that that was true, she would have to then change the way she went about things, which was very scary. Mm. So vulnerability, uh, she says, sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. And so she says that vulnerability is like being naked on stage and hoping for applause rather than laughter. That's us at the moment, mate. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it so, is kind of daunting to record your opinions, uh, particularly being someone myself who has always had a bit of trouble with that and then also, you know, getting that kind of connection to vulnerability is not something I've been particularly good at and a skill that you've kind of got to build up over time, I think. So we're gonna we're gonna try this episode, hey, to to lean into a little bit more of that vulnerability, hey. Absolutely. Get, get stuck into it. The and so she says that vulnerability is life's great dare, and I think this is where you have some of those real parallels coming in about Pressfield's work, and it's it's kind of like that great dare that you need to to go at. Um, you have the courage to kind of put yourself out there and and, and be seen in some ways so mm. um you know we spend we spend our lives pushing away and protecting ourselves from feeling vulnerable or from being perceived as being too emotional which is what i spoke about earlier we feel contempt when we when others are less capable or willing to mask feelings suck it up and soldier on so you know we've come to the point where rather than respecting and appreciating the courage and daring behind vulnerability we let our fear and discomfort become judgment and criticism. Mm. So she says then that our willingness willingness to own and engage with our own vulnerability determines the depth of our courage and the clarity of our purpose. The level to which we protect ourselves from being vulnerable is a measure of our fear and disconnection. Yeah, it's interesting because... You know, we, we, me, I'm going to like like, create a rule. We need to create a rule every time we say it's interesting. We there's a punishment. This is, this oh, is, it's a fun. Yeah, it's a drinking game for the listeners. <laughs> talk, talk about deflection straight onto. Straight, so we're not going to take the hit straight onto the listeners. So it's almost an incentive so for us like to a, say it more. Is it a? All right. Well, why don't we say this? What's a figure that we will donate to a charity every time we say it's interesting? We, you want to put a dollar in each? I think that's fair. All right. I, I reckon that, that's a good idea. Who's going to count it? Shit. Someone, someone will. <laughs> someone, someone will just create, create a loop video of our, of our episodes and <laughs> get the tally up. That's it. Well, someone out there can can let us know on Instagram what we're up to, and we'll uh, we'll put it to a we'll we'll put it somewhere to a good cause. So I'll kick it off. It's interesting that it's, that's a dollar from you, dollar from me. Uh, to me, that's something that came up with this. It was sort of around you know people show you their highlights reel. You know, never has that been more the case than. <laughs> at the moment where you, you've got a, you know, a camera and the filters and all that crap, you know, something that everyone talks about. But, you know, this You're is You're talking about, about Instagram here. I'm talking about life. Yeah. So, like, even, like, now, you know, how are you? You said at the start of this, 
I'm great, you know. How are you? Fantastic. Or you meet that person and depending what the status thing is in your conversation, like if it's at work, you they're like, oh, I'm so busy, you know. And that's kind of their way of saying I'm busy because I'm important or what have you. And it's not about oversharing but it's like people are trying to put on everyone, including me, you, everyone, to put on that highlights reel, you know. And so what we're actually she says in the book is that we're actually looking for others to be vulnerable but for us not to be because we understand that when we see that in someone else it creates connection but when we but we don't we won't do it ourselves you know uh, and i think that that's um that's a big thing you know is that and you can see in the way she communicates and one of the reasons why she's so uh you can connect with her writing is that she she really opens up you know but not to the point where it's like uncomfortable for you you know i think she talks about that as well she took yeah well, one of the big things she says is the important thing about vulnerability is that you are sharing with people that have earned the right to hear that vulnerability it's not about broadcasting out every single nook and cranny of your your life, your deepest, darkest demons and skeletons in the closet and broadcasting them out to the entire world um, because she says that that is specifically not vulnerability. That's just broadcasting. That's just, you know, sh- being on show. That's the same thing as running around with these highlights, this highlight, highlight reel on because there's probably a different motivation in there. It's about that feeling of, you know, I imagine typically with a certainly in like a one-on-one um, situation where you know you feel that there might be that moment where you go, "Am I going to share this?" And then instead of choosing to just move on into the next conversation or s- skip over it, you kind of lean in, lean in there, and go, "No, I'm going to bring that up. I'm going to say that here. I'm going to be vulnerable here." And that's where she says, "Have the courage to be vulnerable in that situation." because she actually yeah that's definitely one thing she points out is it's it's about the there's the, there's like this reciprocal nature to it mm, yeah and she talks about that a bit later in the book where it's about work as well um so then so- yeah i was going to say the other the other side then um because it sounds scary and it's like well what happens and from from the work that she's done uh she says it's the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. Uh, it's the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. And it gives greater clarity and purpose um, um, to our lives. That's some pretty big, pretty bold statements there, mate. It is. And it's it's not, I think it is a little, I know for me, it's not something you can just switch on. It's like, it's a muscle to grow, isn't it? Like to kind of recognize it in yourself. Are you actually even being honest with yourself? Right. That's not that easy. Um, and this is something that, as I've read this book, I've I've started to learn a lot about this, and it's a journey to continue to go on. And even having this conversation is going to help understanding what she's she's talking about. I think. I'm certainly not coming to this from a point of having mastered it. That's for sure. Well, it it sounds like you know if if anyone's to be you know, maybe to have been a master of this, it's probably Brené Brown, right? And she still says that she's going on this journey every single day. Every single day mm-hmm. for her is a journey into this this vulnerability, and this is like her life's work is studying vulnerability and shame and and some of these other. Deep, deep-seated emotions. So I think it's I think it's a continual thing that we continue to do. Is there and, anything? Uh, go on. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I think I think the key thing that we touched on there is um, it just grows over time. And requires work, requires attention, and and kind of full engagement with it. She says it's like growing a marble collection. 
<laughs> That's so random. Did you did you ever play marbles? Because I think I no. think no, nah, neither did I. I think she's she's in a different different age bracket to us. Yeah, it's not something that got rolled around. I mean, yo-yos were a thing. That was pretty cool. What, did she have a yo-yo collection? No, just one. But you, you know, there was a big yo-yo phase in primary school. Huge. So how how is that how is that a relatable analogy? Well, it's a kind of a kid's game, isn't it? You yeah, know, I you think she's saying, talking about like getting a better marble collection. connection. Well, what about Pokemon card collection? That's something we did. Yeah. Oh, yeah to like, right. a, to like a band. Like a band. It's yeah. happening in Bendigo. Yeah, I think I think they banned all the sources of fun, mate. What about Tamagotchi? Was that were you too young for that? Yeah, but again, I don't know if you collected those. Although a few people used to kick around with like Tamagotchi on a keychain. Used to have these keychains, and you'd have like three or four of them. I never quite understood that. Why did you collect marbles? I was still jealous. (laughs) You still wanted it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, so any kind of personal reflections for you on how you felt when you were reading this portion around the vulnerability stuff? Yeah, um, like every bit. Uh, but aside from every bit, there was one that one that really stood out was um, she said that re- like research tells us we judge people in areas that we we are vulnerable to shame. And I think that's something that I'm definitely susceptible to. Um, mm. Yeah, and it's it's something that's very hard to to stop. I think that's a very that's a very innate thing, um, which is why she's that's obviously really picked, it up, picked it up in research. Yeah, and so can you, what's in it? Like, can you give an example? Well, mate, my OCD tendencies to do things in a particular way just scream at me from time to time when when I might see someone doing something in a in a way that's you know maybe not as precise as it needs to be or as efficient as it needs to be and I don't mean that mostly when mostly mostly when dealing with me yeah mostly dealing with you trying to set up your fucking microphone (laughs) yeah or posting in slack in a random order (laughs) that really gives you that kills you every time so that's that, that must be where I'm most vulnerable. It's on there, it's good enough. <laughs> that must be where I'm most vulnerable to the shame. Yeah. So yeah, like, that's a really interesting concept that I think is super relevant. Is there any is there any um kickers for you there, mate? I think the kickers for me came a bit further on, to be honest. Um Probably more around the shame section, I think, was where I kind of probably recognised a bit more um, what was happening with me. But certainly, I mean, okay, so we've had a slight technical issue. So Um, talking about twigging on my OCD judgments and things. uh, Don't shame me here. hit it on the head there, Lockie. Don't shame me here. This week it was... uh, (laughs) It was my computer memory was full because there's crap everywhere on my computer, which would make there's Ryan no have a heart attack. So there's, but, no, there's no shame, mate. But I'm we have all, it. I'm, I'm, I'll put it aside. Thank you. I've moved on. I appreciate it. So talking about shame, um, this is probably the other key point of the book, right? Is that she kind of introduces vulnerability and then she talks about the way that shame is a blocker that stops us, um, I suppose, exploring vulnerability. Um, and, she, you know, it was interesting that she explained her journey into researching this, that she really started out interviewing women around shame uh, and felt that that was probably where it was most acute between the sexes and then she had an encounter with a man at one of her talks who encouraged her in very strong language to you know look into that um in men as well and when she did she was kind of shocked with what she found and 
And now she feels that it's kind of equally felt between men and women, but it's felt in different ways. And effectively kind of her definition kind of, this is paraphrasing her, but it kind of revolves around the feeling of not being normal when compared to a societal norm. And she, in very broad categories, and this may not be your experience um, personally, but um, on, you know, on average or if you want to use that word, if there is an average. She you don't says need that, to step, t- tip to it, mate. Just get oh, into look, it. you know, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's important that you kind of, I think particularly with masculinity and feminin- femininity, you don't have to be a man to feel some of the stuff she's talking about now uh, or you don't need to be a woman to. I think that can induce shame, right, <laughs> if you don't. Yeah. If it's actually interesting that you bring that up because, like, this is like the archetype that she's talking about and you could actually feel shame about not feeling shame in the way you should. <laughs> it goes yeah, that deep. A, a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> so... She says that men, they can basically never be weak, that shame causes shutting down or anger to happen um, in men more broadly and in women there's the pressure to be beautiful or be good at everything but make it look effortless at the same time and these are patterns that she saw came through. And then when women feel shame, they're more likely Uh, through her research to um, criticise others um, and kind of lash out in that way. And so I think that... And what about about men? What what do... Well, they they either just shut down and become a rock, you know, which is probably the mode that I go into, um, or they lash out in, in anger, you know. And really explosive. In physical physical anger, explosive anger. Yeah, maybe not physical violence necessarily. That is one of them, but also just anger and being super angry and emotive and threatening, you know. Um, and so it affects people in very, very strong ways and it's a blocker to exploring the vulnerability. Do you, do you feel the do you feel the weakness do you feel that weakness is is something that triggers you right uh, I think it's yes I do um, I think that feeling like maybe not physically strong is one but more like weakness around there's multiple ways that you can be weak you know or be seen to be weak and it's maybe not taking on a particularly daunting task or, you know, being afraid to have that tough conversation. I think that I feel that kind of pang of shame, like I should be able to deal with this um, a lot. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing to emphasise here is that the weakness thing isn't just, you know, related to, to physicality and just the same as in the, in the case of the female, it's not, you know, it's not the aesthetic beauty, um, you know, in isolation. It's it's like an overall image thing, um, you know. And so, what? How does something perceived, or how is it? How, how does it look? So, in the case of in the case of weakness, I reckon a classic, classic one that's thrown around. Um, certainly, going back to uh, construction or even growing up is, you know, are you up to it? Do you reckon you're up to it or do you reckon you're up for it? Mm. And like that comment there is a um, – it's like a perpetuation of of that very shaming culture, which is quite interesting because it, it hits on, you know, a way to make a guy do something is to go, you up for it, mate? Or do you reckon you can handle it or do you reckon you, you're up for it? Mm. And because as soon as you do that, it's it, it triggers the, you know, the weakness thing. The ego comes over and jumps in and says – yeah, I've got this. Absolutely got this. Yeah, I, mean, I think it took me a long time, particularly in a work setting, to even be able to say, "Look, I don't know." You know, and when I kind of got that through that, it was very empowering because I kind of saw a lot of 
people I respected doing it. And I was like, maybe I don't need to fig- have everything figured, you know. Um, well, mate, you've progressed a lot further than many if, you, if you're at that stage because she, we'll talk about it shortly, but one of the dated paradigms is about that, you know, leaders not always need to know everything. Leaders yeah. need to, you know, and certainly in running a business or running a team or managing a team, like to not have the answers is okay. Mm. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. So Brene talks about this, what she calls shame resilience. And so this is all part of her idea of a way to live what she calls a wholehearted life. Um and the four key elements of that are recognizing that it's happening to you, which is again something that you know I've had to work on to kind of see that in myself. Assessing expectations. So, like, what a what is the kind of expectation I'm trying to live up to here that is causing me to feel this way? Reaching out to someone trusted and giving it a voice, I'm feeling this way. And she really talks about that once it's kind of, she kind of relates this to Harry Potter <laughs> actually, but that that is a lot, of, a lot of that work, that writing is around shame she feels and that if you kind of give it a voice, if you say Voldemort's name or whatever, um, it diminishes its power. So keep giving, putting it out into the light. Um, is a way that she talks about really being able to kind of see that perhaps it's not as scary as you thought because a lot of the feelings that come up through this, her research has said that it's mostly about fear of what others will think. It's, it's, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, bang, there's a dollar. Um, <laughs> he costing me. I'm bringing myself down at the same time. <laughs> the, the, you know, he, he who must not be named, right? The, you know, the shame that must not be named. In one of her, I think it's in her second TED talk, she actually talks about almost like explicitly naming it. And, you know, she did this study on people who say a particular phrase and, it's, it's a phrase that's like an entry into a conversation. It's like uh, when you do that particular thing or, or this is the way that I'm, you know, the way that I'm seeing this or the way that I'm hearing this or the way that I'm understanding this, you know, one of those type of phrases when you're approaching someone about something shameful is that this is how I interpret it. And so you're kind of calling out that particular um, shaming thing somewhat directly um, by saying those phrases and then going on to talk about that particular thing with someone else. And she says that that's a really great way to kind of break into um, enabling conversations to happen around shame or around vulnerability with other people. Having some of these like lead-in words which really help break the ice. Mm. Yeah, kind of your language is important. Um, She says, shame resilience is about finding a middle path, an option that allows us to stay engaged and to find the emotional courage we need to respond in a way that aligns with our values. Is there anything that resonated with you around the feelings of shame or how that blocks you? The big big one here is the, the process that she outlines, you know, which is the it's almost like a four-step process. Um, yeah, sure, that's 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 great. Um, but I think the hardest part in any of these situations, you know, the same goes for dealing with biases or you know some of our automated heuristics or things that we need to unlearn. For example, is it's about that initial awareness and recognition, and I think that's that can be the hardest part is simply just not seeing it at all. Mm. Um, There are many things that we don't see that go on internally. And I think one of the best things that I've done, one of the biggest, you know, biggest um, 
contributors to helping see some of this stuff go on is meditation without a doubt you know, a regular practice of meditation just because it, it's it can sometimes buy you a little bit more space or give you a little bit more um give you like a slight step back from time to time and be able to see some of these things crop up and for anyone that hasn't delved into meditation that can sound quite quite woo woo uh it can sound quite abstract but it's it's getting pretty mainstream it's definitely now not. Um, mm. which is a good thing but i think there's still plenty of people that haven't actually tried it or or don't get why it's such a thing or just think it's just a stress reliever or something like that i, I think there's a lot more to it than than just that mm. in fact i don't think it research has shown <laughs> what's that i said so re- yeah re- research has shown it I don't think it research has shown it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's yeah. um yeah, it's a thing. Get on board. So, so we mentioned the the institution before, which is the some of the dated paradigms that that have come to play and and Lockie, you are you're sitting in a in a bracket I think that would be a more of a minority across the board, I think, in that situation where you're actually comfortable with saying I don't know. Because my first-hand experience is that's not something that that's, – that's a very rare thing to hear someone in a high position say, certainly in more hierarchical organisations. Yeah, I look, it's not something that comes easily and all the time and a lot of the time I still, you know, bullshit like the rest of us. But uh, I think I've, I've gotten a lot further down the path of saying, look, I'm not sure. Let's find out, you know. And people appreciate it, even though it's pretty scary. Yeah, and I think I, I like the second bit that you you introduced there, um, because I've I have heard this whole you know people say I don't know, but it's a very dismissive you know I don't know like move on who cares, um, and I don't think that's necessarily constructive either. Uh, I think that's that's also another a bad trait. But anyway, she talks about you know when shame, this idea of shaming becomes a management style, engagement within organisations change, and basically what it does is because there is if there's a shame culture that's been driven, uh, you know which where it's bad to not have the answers, um, where if you make a mistake that's yeah, you know, it's seen as being such a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, what happens is we disable the ability to learn and create and innovate within organisations. This is a huge one from Creativity Inc., which is one of our later episodes, <clears throat> that they put a lot, a lot, a lot of effort at Pixar into not quashing an idea or giving everyone... There's no, it's not that there's no bad ideas, but you don't get, you don't get kind of talked down to if your idea isn't that good, you know, it's, it's an open culture with a lot of trust. Yeah. And, you know, another example of that is, and it's quite an old one and many people have heard of it, heard of it, but uh, just Google's, you know, 20% time or whatever it is, or one day a week where you get to do whatever it is the hell you want to do, um, whatever project you want to work on. And that's a real give empowering um, way to empower those to to go about tinkering and making a mistake and trying something. And, you know, if nothing comes of it, you know, that, so be it. But something may come of it eventually. It may not come of it, you know, initially. And there's been many, many examples of that, of either complete new innovations within companies or completely new companies spun out of some of these things that have happened and huge successes along the way. Yeah, I think that the best leaders know to ask good questions. Like if I just reflect on my the people I've enjoyed working with the most, is that like, yeah, I remember on being on one tender in a giant meeting and the... The, the leader just basically was just saying, 
you need to explain to this to me really simply. I don't understand, you know, going through it and being the one that no one else dared to be. Kind of reminds me of um, there's a movie called Margin Call, which is a, a great movie, and Jeremy What's Irons' Margin Call, and it's basically you should watch it. It's about it's basically based around like is it the a two- movie or a documentary. It's a movie, and it's about at the end of a of 2008, basically one of the stockbrokers figures out late at night that the whole company's at risk of falling over when the market opens tomorrow because of the, their crazy trades. Anyway, stuff happens, stuff happens. Then they fly in the big, big head executive, you know, and he choppers in and just as they go into the room, they say, whatever you do, don't lie to him, you know. And what he asks in the room is that there's a whole, you know, full boardroom of people and he says, explain, he says to the quant guy, explain this issue to me, but tell it to me as if I was a golden retriever. Like I'm not smart enough to understand this, so you just tell it to me in the simplest terms possible. And in that he he immediately shows his authority by not being scared to admit his weakness. It's an interesting concept and it's not about power but it, it kind of has that. It's leadership, I guess, isn't it? Although he's a pretty horrible guy so let's not take it to that example. <laughs> if you've watched the movie you realise this guy's not that nice but it's a it's kind of a, a Hollywood version of that kind of style i guess so what what you're saying like is model off him but don't model off him absolutely i like it don't be him <laughs> yeah it's a great um, movie it's you should definitely it, watch it it's after interesting, this episode I'm, after we stop recording there's, there's a double there's a double there's a double take on this we right? both said it's because, interesting just then yeah so Mate, i'm going to be i'm going to be broke after this <laughs> after this one episode <laughs> Uh, hopefully we stop soon. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, the there's a double take there because he might be just doing that from a power play position too. Because to be able to actually explain something simply, um, yeah, it's sorry, a smart position, not necessarily a power play, but to be able to explain something simply, you need to understand it, you know, to its absolute depth. Mm. Like there's the throwaway if you can't explain it in 30 seconds you don't know it or if you can't well you know richard Feynman's idea around i think he's famous for saying um you need to be able to educate this to a a 12 year old Mm -hmm. and so he's been able to distill down some like some of the you know some crazy theoretical physics ideas and you know quantum theory and stuff and explain it to 12 year olds and and that's a real showing of you know mastership and that you you've you've worked out your way around you know what it is that you're talking about indeed so the 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 other thing she says it's the um it's really crept in this whole you know viking or victim and you did mention wall street then and i think you know wall street definitely has that name of you know the, the win or lose you know we crush or we get crushed type mentality. And she basically, you know, that 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 definitely encourages this shaming culture. So the the question I've got is probably how because at the end of the day there is some commercial realities. Um, you know, obviously to running a business. And so finding the balance between um the reality that you know, there is sharks out there in the in the wide open world versus, you know, internally we don't we don't want that culture that permeates that. So, you know, we are a fish sitting in the ocean as an organization and there's plenty of sharks kicking around, but how do we keep keep everything internally running, you know, without you know, without the focus on that. Without the dog eat dog, you know, scariness. Yeah, it's, I mean, something like law is kind of a zero-sum game, which is why you, I guess you pay your barrister so much. 
So it's a win or lose outcome, I assume anyway. That's why you pay them so much. But so in that it's particularly difficult um, because it is combative. Um, But I guess there's like, you know, as a group, not that many things are that kind of zero sum, I don't think, unless you set them up that way. Particularly if you're an organisation, you can grow. Like if see, people don't have to clamber over each other to get a leg up. There is, but it's not a group hug either, right? Like you kind of need to, you need feedback like Ray Dalio kind of talks of. Um, but it's about doing it with empathy. It's not about yeah. pretending everyone's great and we all get a medal. It's about being empathetic that it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or what have you if you need to work on something. So, yeah, it's about not. And pre- so it's not. What- it's pretending you're not invincible. I think. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a nice little um, yeah. Or not a nice little way to bring invincible. some accountability. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's maybe a, a good way to think about bring in a little bit of that accountability that's driven from that, ex, you know, being in the ocean. Because um, she she talks of normalising is a hugely powerful thing if you're in a leadership position. And if someone stuffs something up or something, you telling them about a time that you did too makes them feel human. Uh, and... Yeah. And also, it also means that... Um, because without a doubt that leader is going to make mistakes and you know, as much as they try to cover it up at some point you know at some point in time it will be found out about their mistake and people's people um learn you know they learn from not what you say but from what is done and what what you do and how you act and so this is where she talks about this idea of the disengagement divide and you know the shame, the shame that permeates because people, um, you know, are shaming particular acti- you know, ways of doing things, or if you make mistakes or whatever. But then, then you have this on the other side. You know, you as the leader are, you know, you are making mistakes, and you're just kind of shuffling them to the side or not having them preached out. And so you aren't, you aren't being, you know, reprimanded, but everyone else is. You end up with this yeah. divide. Yeah, there's actually a book that you just reminded me of that I'd like. I've got on my reading list called Einstein's Mistakes. I think it's just a book about all the things he stuffed up. <laughs> so that- there's there's also there's also Einstein's biggest uh, greatest blunder, biggest blunder, I think, um, which is another one I think that talks about yeah, exactly probably that that even these you know people like Einstein makes mistakes all the time. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the only way out of making mistakes is if you if you're not here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's some is an interesting thing you've you've kind of got here around tag that I'm intrigued by. I want to know more about. This is is this one of your um, principles? This was. Uh, yeah, so this this is something that that kind of kind of cropped up um, for me when when I was thinking about uh, this idea. Now it's not it's not wholly related, but it, it I think it, I think it I think there's inklings of it here. So the idea is this: the tag is the the accessibility gateway, and. Uh, the way the way I look at it is, um, you might be listening to a you know an incredible musician, for example. Let's say let's say a jazz a jazz musician, um, and the likes of say Miles Davis or John Coltrane or something, right? And you might have never you know you might might have gone along with with a friend to a concert with these guys, 
right? And you've got no idea what you're walking into. You've, you've listened to a couple of, you know, jazz tracks in, in, in your time, you know, nothing nothing too serious but you might have listened to some some of the commercial things right you, you know that there's a few horns that play and a few drums and whatever so your friend takes you there and you know you sit down and um you you've got kind of no no idea what you're kind of coming into you're expecting some of the stuff you've heard on maybe the radio or whatever and and then they open up and just launch into this like real esoteric you know quirky jazz thing that's going on and you know it's just pure improvisation and it almost sounds like obscure sounds to you you know like you've never you're like this isn't music what's going on what the hell's happening here and and then so the first the first five to ten minutes they're just they're just jamming away playing this stuff and you're kind of looking around everyone's getting into it except for you um and you just think that everyone here has just lost their minds and you know you're kind of looking at your friend they're getting into it and then what happens is you go well that was weird after after they finish their jam and you know, in between songs and then you go well i'm pretty well you know disconnected from whatever's going on here at the moment now so i've i've lost all, i've lost all interest and what happens uh next song they launch into they they play something that's a little you know much more uh, you know um, relatable something that you you know that you've heard on the radio like a classic track that you've heard on the radio and and they launch into this track and it's all normal for the first you know say the first five minutes and then they kind of gradually launch into this like deep improv solo and then pull their way back out and back into the kind of the mainstream and you go oh that stuff that we heard before was kind of connected in with this particular song i get it yeah and this is this is the very short version because it probably has to happen many times but you've also given the guys a a big credibility tick because that was the best rendition of that particular song that you've ever heard and you never thought it could be played that way so they've kind of gained this credibility tick from what they do and now you've kind of been open up to a different perspective and, and way of seeing these things and so for me um taking that analogy into um into this disengagement divide space is um about aligning the organizational vision you know what the actual organizations try, where they're trying to head to and and allowing people to see you know, what that actually looks like and see that these things that we're doing on the surface actually equate and you can see a, see a direct line through it. It, it gives people the, the accessibility to that, um, that way of thinking. Um, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty disjointed um, analogy, but um, I think it applies to, to an organisation just as much as it would to, say, a creative pursuit or you know, learning something new. So it's kind of about allowing people something they can relate to before you get them to dive in deeper. This or seeing the connection. Yeah, it's like, we, yeah. Uh, so it's you know we, we might not, and and this this is just a classic thing of change. We're not going to jar the entire organisation by, you know, everyone comes in the following you know, the following Monday and see that we've now gone from all having our own desks to you know no one's even heard about this coming and everyone now no longer has a desk we're all on hot you know hot spotting and um we've decided that we um no longer use have paper in the office either Hmm. yeah that's like that's a pretty big overhaul to happen straight away and and it's just come from nowhere as opposed to trickling in these these things and making them align to the vision and then the way in which the leaders are acting you know the the top of the chain's acting is the same um, as what is actually expected of everyone else, or is being said to be expected of everyone else. I like it. Tag. I'm going to use it. Tag it up. It's catchy. It's like tag, 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 tag. You're it. I'm taking you, know, <laughs> and you got to chase me. You got to chase me in. <laughs> chase me into the jazz improv solo. That's awesome. I wish I could have seen some of those guys play. It would be awesome. So do I. So 
So she says, to lead effectively, use vulnerability to overcome shame in your team. Then this will bring out the vulnerability in them. It's a nice summary. Yeah. Be the... I think... Lead with it. Because you're acting on it. You're acting on it. Yeah. yeah. It's leadership, right? In its simplest term, I think. It's it's really nice. I love that sentence. It's easy to say, harder to achieve. So something to aspire to. It's like all those good throwaways, mate. Yeah. So lastly, before we get into what we'll try and change, one concept that really stuck with me is that Renee talks about the idea that there's this scarcity culture that we kind of live in that um, where, you know, we feel that there's not enough, um, whether it's consumerism or just the way you look or feel or this sort of thing, and that often it's talked about as abundance is kind of the other side of that. I know it you know, some meditations and that sort of thing. That's a word that's thrown around. But she says that kind of the actual, it's a bit like hate isn't the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. It's like, okay, scarcity, the opposite's not abundance. The opposite is enough, is having this feeling of I'm enough or I have enough or my situation is enough and that's something that I thought was really nice because it's a really kind of succinct word and it's not really used too much so it's got a it's got a bit of um I guess you can pin a new idea to it a little bit and the feeling but, of but hang on Lockie me as a uh, you know an avid personal developer and someone that just wants to grow I don't want to just get to enough surely I want to go more than that how do I deal with that? It's about enough in the moment, I think, is what she's trying to communicate. So I'm enough now, but I I care about myself, so I'm going to get better, you know, and that that mindset is a great mindset and that's all you need right now is to know that you can, you're going to keep going because it's like if you, you know, you're going on, you want to go to the gym every day for two hours and you'd miss it the one day and you go, oh, fuck it, I'm done. You know, well, that's not really a kind enough sort of posture for yourself. You need to um, don't throw it all out. You know, you, you're trying, that's enough, you know, and you're going to try again tomorrow. Um, and so I think she talks around this feeling of kind of trying to find a place where you're kind of kind to yourself, talking to yourself like you would speak to a close friend is something that she talks about a lot. Um, and that it brings down your armour when you do that. So give yourself a break. You know, we're a harsh critic. <laughs> the internal voice is pretty harsh, I think, for all of us. So, you know, and this kind of idea of scarcity is, is all through our society. But let's, uh, you know, if you can kind of switch that conversation, it could be pretty powerful, I think. Yeah, well, it ties back to that uh, that earlier thing. Uh, that we said around um, that you shame or sorry, you judge others where you feel most shamed, right? And by you leaning into, you know, whatever this is, these particular areas, particularly those that clearly you judge others, which is where you obviously feel most shame, by you saying, you know, I am enough in this particular situation um, related to that, that area so you know, by how well Lockie sets up his microphone every single recording session um, means that some of that some of that shame will dissipate not just about others but also about yourself and so you kind of you kind of settling the, the chaos that surrounds it mm. in doing that yeah for whatever reason it's just the part that really stuck with me and I'm going to use that that's probably my one thing to focus on the concept of enough and to use her four steps to overcome the shame and recognise the shame and kind of share it with someone close to kind of give it that light. What about you, mate? I think you've got a a kind of different perspective on what you'll probably change because of this book or different focus. 
we've we've threaded we've threaded it a little bit throughout the whole episode, but um, I think perfectionism is something that she harps on, and uh, it's just it's definitely something that I've had for a long, long time. And she says that perfectionism is not self improvement. You know, perfectionism at its core is about trying to earn approval. Most perfectionists grew up, you know, being praised for achievement. And, you know, it becomes a debilitating belief system. Yeah. You know, it's I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. You know, please perform perfectly is, is what she says. And so she says that perfectionism is, is a hustle. It's not a, not a healthy striving towards improvement, for example. And there's a great, a great little, um, quote from Voltaire in the book it says don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and so that'll be that'll be one one space for me mate is leaning into um not judging you on your slack comments as harshly thank you going to the future that's okay I know I'm enough <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, we thought we'd close with the with the Theodore Roosevelt quote that does kind of cap both ends of this book. Yeah, do you want to do the honors, mate? Or I'll let you. You'll edit it. Yeah. So this is, and and I'm sure many people have heard of the the man in the arena, but it's it's so fitting. So it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly who errs but comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at, its, and at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Fantastic. And aside from the fact I fucked all that up, that's a fantastic quote. Nah, well, well said. It's awesome. That was fun. Definitely no Theodore Roosevelt, mate. <laughs> Now you did good. Catch you next time. See you, mate.